All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're going to be as the kids make their way out of here. Congratulations on making it to church on time. Good job, guys. Thank you, uh, Verizon. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're going to be in the text. As we make our way towards the second chapter of the first letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you'll remember with me that uh, Paul planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And so as Paul plants the church there in Corinth, uh, they're in the middle of this very popular trade area. Uh, they're a successful group. And so Paul plants the church here, and then he, shortly thereafter, probably just a year or two after the church was planted, he begins to see, receive letters, word as to how the church is actually doing, what's taking place in Corinth. And no doubt, uh, Paul would have been very surprised. And, and I love this because as we look at this letter, it reminds me how often you hear people say, I wish church was like what it was back in the first century. Why can't it just be like it was in the book of Acts? And what we find through this study of Corinth is uh, church is an awful lot like what it was back in the first century. That the problem with church, even from the very beginning, was, uh, well, it had people in it. <laughs> and, and people are flawed. We've got issues. We've got stuff we're working on, misunderstandings, misconceptions. And so the church in Corinth had an awful lot of this uh, taking place. And so Paul receives letters as to what is going on, what the struggles are that are happening. And for the first 11 chapters, he's going to write to them to address, correctively to address the struggles that they're having there in Corinth. And when we advance to chapters 12 through 16, we're going to see Paul switch from a corrective writing to constructive writing. As you live out a life as a New Testament Christian, here's what it should and could and might look like. And he's writing to this group of people that are incredibly gifted. They've got all kinds of gifts, spiritually, uh, physically, they've been blessed. I mean, they've got uh, finances. And in fact, it reminds us an awful lot of uh, the Western church, which is why this letter is going to be eye-opening. It's going to be challenging. It's also going to be very encouraging as we make our way through 1 Corinthians. Because what we see is here's a church that is gifted in all these ways, and yet they are struggling with maturity. They are woefully immature, and the reason they're so immature is they're missing something very vital that's needed. It's not giftings, it's love. This is the reason Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's to address the issues that they're having in the area of actually loving one another. And so what we looked at last week as Paul is beginning to address the issues happening there in Corinth. He starts uh, not with the word that he got that uh, there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom, I mean, that might be a place to start. Or he doesn't uh, jump over to uh, them getting drunk at the communion dinner they're having together or cutting in line with one another, but instead he addresses divisiveness. This is the thing that breaks church down from the inside out. It is insidious and it starts uh, right here. And this is what Paul says is don't be divided. It's one thing to have groups to run around in. You're, you're naturally going to gravitate to people who have common interests and common understandings. But the issue is it does not make you better than anyone. We are all on the same playing field when it comes to our relationship with Christ Jesus. We're all working this out with fear and trembling. And so Paul wants to say, look, uh, let me be clear. You are not to be divided. Is Christ divided? The answer is no. And so Paul writes to them in this way, and then he transitions at the end of chapter 1 as he encourages them in wisdom. But not to have wisdom from man, 
but instead to have wisdom from God. And there's a drastic difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. To man, to the natural man, the wisdom of God seems like foolishness is what Paul writes in verse 18 of chapter 1 to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. When we see the the wisdom of God being shared through His Word, it's the very power to give us life. And the world is not going to get it. And so Paul continues on this theme as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2 where he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or with wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As Paul made his way in Acts chapter 18 to Corinth, remember where he was right before that. I shared this with you a little bit last week, that in chapter 17 at the end, He was in Athens. And as he made his way through Athens, what he saw were idols. Idols everywhere. Uh, In fact, it was said of ancient Athens, they had more idols than they had people in Athens. I mean, there were idols to every imaginable God you could come up with. So much so that as Paul was walking through Athens, they didn't want to miss even one potential idol that they might worship to because they didn't want to upset a god if they didn't know it so they even made an altar to the unknown god like just in case we missed one here's an altar to the one we missed and so as paul begins to address the men there in athens that gathered on mars hill he says for i was passing through in verse 23 of acts 17 and considering the objects of your worship and i even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown god therefore the one whom you worship without knowing Him I proclaim to you. I'm going to address to you this unknown God, the one that you didn't know you were worshiping. I'm going to tell you about Him. And Paul proceeds in Acts 17 to lay out this wonderful message. I mean, this is one that Bible scholars for thousands of years have written about, the perfection that was in the midst of Paul's message in Acts chapter 17. And yet the reception that he received in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Absolutely zero people came to know Jesus after the Acts 17 message on Marcel. Nobody accepted. And when you read through that that message, and I would encourage you through this week, just read over it. It's beautiful the way Paul assembled it. But you're going to notice something missing. Never one time did he mention the name of Jesus. He alludes to Jesus. He suggests Jesus. He mentions the resurrection, and that's when they cut him off, but he never mentions the name of Jesus. And so you can imagine how dejected he was, how put off he was when no one came to know the Lord. And he arrives in the next chapter in Corinth. And what did he say in verse 2? I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, I tried in wisdom. I tried to come up with every great point that I could make to convince these Greeks that there was an unknown God and this God is Jesus, but I didn't say the name. I didn't mention that He was our Savior. The cross and Him crucified. And so from this point forward, 
you see a shift, a change in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to give him Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to proclaim his name. This is the power of God. And so this is the change that happens with Paul. And I want to encourage you because here it's a very simple message. It's a simple message of the cross. Yet it doesn't mean Paul preaches simply. There's a difference. And I say that because for years, churches have grabbed a hold of this and they only give the exact same message week in and week out. That's not what Paul was saying. What he's saying is as we study the Word, let the cross be at the forefront, let it be in the middle, let it be in the back of your minds. Remember Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was known for teaching some of the most complex things. In fact, Second uh, Peter, even the Apostle Peter says, look, uh, Paul's teachings... Uh, they are complicated and difficult to understand. You know, this is Peter. So there are things Paul shares that are not simple, and yet the message of the cross is one of simplicity. And so we continue. In verse 6, he says, However I speak, however we speak wisdom among you who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What Paul is saying here is that if the rulers of the age knew what the cross was really going to do for you and I, they would have never gone through with it. They would have never finished what they had started. Now, who are these Rulers that Paul is referring to, would it be uh, Pontius Pilate uh, or perhaps Herod or maybe even the Sanhedrin that gathered together there at night to have a false trial for Jesus? Uh, and the answer, I believe, Jesus gave with his own words back in John chapter 12, verse 31. He says, this is Jesus speaking. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus addresses who was behind the scenes, who was the one pushing all the buttons, and it was none other than the deceiver himself. The ruler that Paul is referring to is the same ruler that, G that Jesus is mentioning. And what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 I'll actually pick up in verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For verse 12, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places the rulers that were behind the scenes that Paul is referring to, that Jesus was speaking of, is none other than Satan and his demons. And what they want from you and for you and in your life is to seek and to kill and to destroy. They want you to be damned just like they are for all of eternity. And that's the reason that they come up against us. So when we think we're fighting against flesh and blood, what Paul is saying is you're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers. And they're the ones trying to mess with you continually. And yet these powers and principalities and rulers, they didn't understand the text. 
They didn't understand what Jesus was actually up to, that he was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. In fact, what Paul would say to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, is this, And you, being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive today together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. That is, Jesus was being nailed to the cross, and the powers and the principalities and the rulers, they were cheering, thinking that they had finally defeated him. This Messiah spoken of uh, from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would be the seed they had defeated. And yet as they drove the nails through his hand and he was placed in the ground, they were wrong. Dead wrong. In fact, what Paul says is he made a public spectacle of them. Because as they thought they were nailing Jesus to the cross, they were actually nailing all your sins All your trespasses, they were nailing it all right there. The handwriting of requirements. And it was buried for all of eternity. And as Jesus rose again, He took not only us, but also the keys of hell and death with Him. Death, where is your sting? He had great victory. So what the rulers and the principalities and the powers thought was a victory was a resounding defeat. What we see is throughout history, this is what Satan tries to do. He tries to trip us up. He tries to stop God's plans. He has tried to destroy the Jewish people from the very beginning, from the Genesis chapter 3 that I just mentioned. If you fast forward through the daily Bible reading, we've been going through the story of Joseph right there, right? He wanted to destroy Jacob's family from the inside out. Having Joseph's uh, entire existence, his, his death was faked. He was sent off to Egypt. But what you guys know from reading that story is what Uh, They intended for evil. God intended for good. Jacob's entire family, Israel, was actually preserved through the actions that the enemy sent to destroy Joseph. All the way up through the time of Moses, when Pharaoh said, throw the baby boys in the Nile. Moses was the one that was placed in the water. Drawn out of the water was Moshe. That's what his name meant in Hebrew. He was drawn out of the water to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, God's own people, to the promised land. All the way to the time of Esther where Haman was there in Babylon. He wanted to see the Jewish people destroyed. All the nations would rise up against the Jews and destroy them. And what you know, if you read the book of Esther, is the very gallows he built for Mordecai and the very desires he had to destroy the Jews only ended up destroying himself. This is evil over and over again. God working His plan through the midst of the enemy trying to destroy. All the way to present day. And we see the atrocities of World War II. We see what Adolf Hitler had in mind. To destroy the Jews. To exterminate them. Six million Jews losing their life. Awful things taking place. And yet, in the midst of all this, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8 says this, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in a day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8 was fulfilled on May 14th, 
1948, where the world saw a nation born in a day. In one day, the will of God saw that a nation would give birth. Who's heard of such a thing? In, throughout human history, no people group had been able to hold on to their cultural identity, their language, their religion for more than two generations without a homeland. The Jews went 2,000 years. But to the point of it's ridiculous to consider, and yet in a day, a nation is born. Revival, resurrection taking place right there before our very eyes in our lifetime. It's amazing. Now, I camped out there for a reason. Because oftentimes, we feel like the enemy is making way too many advances. He's having a field day in our lives. Like there's surely no way God is going to get something glorious out of what I got going on here. But when we think back to Jesus talking to Jairus, the, the man who was the ruler over the synagogue, and he brought to Jesus a matter of his own daughter losing her life. What Jesus says in Mark chapter 5, verse 36 is, don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid, only believe. And so this is the command he's given to us. When it looks like we're down and out, when it looks like our situation is too far gone, he says, do not fear, only believe. We continue with that in mind in verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. We have no idea. We cannot comprehend what God actually has in store for us. Now this verse has been pulled out and people have said, is this speaking of eternity or is this speaking of here and now? And I would answer to you, yes. What Paul says, speaking of eternity, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, he speaks of a man who went to the third heaven. He said, whether in this body or out of this body, I don't know. I don't know if this man was dead or alive. And I believe Paul was writing about himself when he was stoned to death outside of Iconium. He writes of this man. He says, when he arrived there in the third heaven, he heard things that were unlawful to even talk about. I heard things so marvelous, I can't even write them down. It would be illegal for me to share with you what I heard. And so there's the things that God has in mind. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. It's going to be amazing. And yet, what is the context we're reading about? We're reading about the here and now. But the truth is, God has in mind for us amazing things in this life. A few weeks back, Evan got to share with you about the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus shared over and over again about the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of heaven now? Is it later? Is it now? Is it later? The answer is yes. It is now and it is later. This is what the Lord has in mind for us now. So much better. The problem is we don't have eyes to see it. Verse 10, Paul says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And so, how can we see these things? How can we witness them? It's only through the Spirit. 
And what Paul does is he gives us an example that only you know what's in your own heart. And even that is questionable if you're like me at times. I don't even know what's in my own heart. But he says only a man knows what's going on in his own heart. So how can we know the things of God if we don't have God in us? That's what he's communicating. What Jesus would say in uh, the book of John is that we can only worship God in spirit and in truth. To truly have a relationship with Him, to worship Him, is to have spirit and to have truth. And that's been used to be a, a way to get people to worship God through a worship service. But I believe what that also means is that we are the tabernacle. We are the temple in God's presence. His spirit dwells in us. And so to worship Him, to have connection with Him, we must first receive Him. We must have the indwelling of the Spirit, and then you can begin to understand the things of God. And so it's not possible for the natural man to understand these things because they're spiritual in nature. And so they can only be understood, only be seen through the Spirit. Verse 12, we continue, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with the spiritual. This is the struggle for Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus is sharing with him how you actually get to experience the kingdom of God. And as he explains this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says in John chapter 3, how can this be? I'll go there so I don't. Uh, misquote it. Nobody likes the band Twisted Scripture, so I will quote it directly from the Holy Bible. Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? And so Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, is looking at this. He's like, ow, I don't, I don't get it. I'm an old man. How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? This, this doesn't resonate with me. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This blew Nicodemus' mind. But what Paul is trying to reiterate for us here in 1 Corinthians is, it, to the natural man, these things won't make sense. We must have the Spirit. And for these Corinthians, he's writing to them. They, they have received the Spirit. There were those that believed in Jesus, and yet the part that was tripping them up is their own carnality. Their own flesh was the issue. It was getting in the way. Their wants, their desires, their needs, the, this flesh that cries out, that wants to be fed, that wants to be satisfied. They had all these giftings, and yet their own pleasure, their own desire was getting in the way of what God had that was best. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 is this, I'll start in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, 
Father. What he says is you didn't receive a spirit of bondage. You had a spirit of bondage. You've now been freed. You've received the spirit of God. And the problem is, as we allow our own fleshly desires to take way, uh, we begin to be in bondage again. That's the issue at hand is that they were allowing themselves to be put back in bondage. And for the carnal Christian, this is always the issue, that they know heaven, but they live like hell. And so as a result, they will most likely make it to heaven. It'll probably be smoking robes. You know, I mean, the door's shutting on the way in. But, but throughout life, it's, it's hell on earth. It's such a struggle. It's such a challenge because of our own carnality. What Paul tells the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, is this is how we're called to live. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not by yourself. It is a gift of God. What Paul's saying to the Ephesians is, you've been seated in heavenly places. The problem is your perspective. That when we bring ourselves down and deal in carnality with earthly problems, we are we are here in the first heaven. We're on, the, we're on the earth. And who did we just read as the ruler of this age currently? It is Satan and his henchmen. It's no wonder we're subject to all of his plans against us because we've reduced ourselves down to a position that is not fitting us. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, we're put in heavenly places, in the third heaven, with him for all of eternity. Not down here in this place to live like this. The challenge for us is to begin to live like it. Stop living like we're carnal and letting all the things of this earth affect us because we've been put in heavenly places. Now, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. For the natural man, all that we've talked about seems like complete foolishness. I mean, it's you are crazy. You've lost your mind. There's no way these things even make sense. They seem silly. And as we look at our Western culture and the philosophy and the ideology, what, what you'll hear is, why would you subject yourself to serve a God you cannot see? Why come under His rule? Why come under His authority? In fact, what, what is the idea of the day? And this is a big word. You can put it in your mind and let it jump out. It's called the heretical imperative. And what it is, is the root word of the word heresy. It means to question or to know, to, to find out, to choose for oneself. That's the idea. And the heretical imperative says that everything should be questioned. That everything that we see, that we touch, that we taste, we should question all of it across the board. And that the only thing that is actually true is what you decide is true. The problem with this is, among many things, is that if we are left to decide for ourselves where the moral line is, 
uh, what puts the line in the sand. I decide reality for me and what is right and true for me, and you decide what is right and true for you. What happens when uh, my moral standards get in the way of your moral standards? Now all of a sudden you have war, strife. It breaks out everywhere because I'm in charge of me. There's no line. There's no true morality. There's no basis for any of us to go off of. And I don't know about you, but if I'm the judge of all morality, if I'm the king of my own universe, if I'm the one who decides, I'm a terrible judge. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not up for the task. None of us truly is. And so what Paul tells Timothy is what the world is going to share with you is freedom. What the world's trying to convince you of, that this is freedom, that you can decide for yourself that it's actually bondage. It's blindness. It, it blinds us in what is really going on behind the scenes. Verse 15, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. You see, for the spiritual man or the spiritual woman, they will see things totally differently. And so as people begin to interact with you as a spiritual man or a spiritual woman, and they come up to you and they say, how can you react in light of that diagnosis the way you have? Well, it's because I am led by the Spirit, not by flesh. Or, or what do you do for fun? That's a good one, right? What do you do for fun if you just love Jesus all the time? How, what do you actually invest your time in? Something's got to be your go-to move. And the reality is for, this, for the natural man, it will not make sense. How do you satisfy yourself? Where do you actually feed? Where do you get your encouragement from if it's not from the world? John chapter 4. Jesus was approached by His disciples right after He got done speaking to the woman at the well. And so He shares with this Samaritan woman. This is a, a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. There's all kinds of things wrong with that. No decent Jew would ever be caught dead speaking to a, a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. They're a bunch of dogs. Like, why would you go there and speak to them? And so as the disciples walk up on this scene where the woman is left encouraged and uplifted, she just met the Messiah, they're looking at Him and they're like, uh, verse 31, His disciples say, Rabbi, eat. The reason they're saying, Rabbi, eat, is because they're thinking, He must be hungry and delirious. He has lost his stinking mind. So, Jesus, you need to eat something. And Jesus responds to them and says, I have food to eat which you do not know. In the old King James that I grew up with, it was, I have food you know not of. And they're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? In fact, I love the honesty of the Bible. The disciples say, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Like they're thinking, is, did Jimmy John's deliver something freaky fast? Like, what? Who, who fed Jesus and we didn't know about it? Like, what's going on here? And he continues and says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The food that I'm consuming, it's not food you have any clue about. This is spiritual in nature. It is to do the will of him who sent me. We've got these bodies that crave and they desire and they want and they're selfish. And yet Jesus is saying, I have food you know not of because I can do the will of the Father, the one who sent me. This nourishes me. It keeps me going. This is, this is what I'm turning to, and it doesn't make sense to them. 
because they can only see it through natural eyes. For verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? This is a question asked in Isaiah chapter 40, 700 years before Paul would write this. It took 700 years to get the answer. But we have the mind of Christ. Who can know the mind of God? Who can discern what God is thinking? That's the question Isaiah posed to them. Who can understand these spiritual things? But Paul, instructing this church in Corinth, says, you have the mind of Christ. You've been given the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? I'm so glad you asked. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is what Paul says in regards to the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being of the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being in the form and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Having the mind of Christ is a mind of humility and a mind of obedience. And here's the thing about humility. It, it, it's something that our flesh absolutely hates because it almost always comes at the hand of humiliation. Nobody likes to be humiliated. Now you think back to the times you've been the most humiliated, it's been the most humbling experience you have probably ever had. And so humility is actually a part of the mind of Christ. What C.S. Lewis says in words you can't read on the screen because they're too small is that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. <laughs> it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so the mind of Christ, having this kind of humility, having a desire to be obedient to the word and the will of the Father, this is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. And so as I was thinking about that this week, uh, trying to write the end of the message, uh, I was sitting in a grade school parking lot outside of a gym in yoga waiting for a basketball practice to get done. This is a place where all great messages apparently are written, in the yoga grade school gym. But I was just considering this, and what kept creeping into my mind is, what do I do now? I've got responsibilities, right? Husband, father, employee, pastor. Like how, how do we do these things? Maybe you've never felt overwhelmed like that. I felt overwhelmed with the task. Overwhelmed with the titles. Like how do, how do I with this mind of Christ, thank you Lord for that, but what, what do I do with all the things I have to do? The expectations that are put there on me and I'm, I'm journaling this stuff down. Like what, what do I do with these expectations? And what the Lord gave me right then was, who asked you to do all those things? Who told you you were all those things? Was it me? I'm like, no. <laughs> what he said was, I only called you to be a son. That's what I called you to be. I called you to be my son. You put all the titles in there. You layered it and made it more complicated. I called you to be a son. 
Now, what does it look like to be a son? I began to think, well, for a son, it looks like just obeying the will of the Father. There's protection in being a son. There's comfort in being a son. I don't have to figure everything out when I'm a son. And when I think about a father, like a really good father, and for you in this room, some of you had great dads, and some of you had a dad in the middle of the road, and some of you had just awful fathers. And so when I say a father, keep in mind I'm saying a really good dad. Some of you are really good dads. Some of us are trying to get there. But, but a really good dad always puts their kid in a position to succeed. Might not look like it to the kid at the time, but no dad puts their kid in the game and says, watch my kid fail. No dad cheers for the kid to miss the big shot or puts him in the, in, in the batter's box and says, hey, batter, batter, so wing batter. Can't wait for my kid to whip. No dad does that. Neither does our Heavenly Father. He does not put you in positions to fail. He puts us in positions to succeed. And His requirement for us, what He actually desires, what He really, really wants from us, is just to obey. Just, just to simply obey. For those of you that love Old Testament time, here's what the prophet Micah Jotched down as the Lord was giving him a word, probably not from a yoga grade school parking lot, but in Micah chapter six, verse eight, he says, "He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God?" If we make it so doggone complicated, and what God says is. Here it is. It's to do right. To do rightly. To love mercy. There's days I don't even like to be merciful, let alone love it. God says love mercy because you've been given and shown mercy, so love giving it out. And to walk humbly with your God. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the mind of Christ. It is almost unfathomable to think that we could have your mind in us. It, it just blows me away. And yet this is the promise of Scripture. That we can have your mind in us. That we can have a mind of simple obedience. Lord Jesus, please give us as a group the mind of Christ. One of simply obeying you, obeying your word, being a really good son and daughter, knowing that there is protection and there is covering and there is a desire to see us succeed in this life and on into eternity just through simple obedience. Lord, give us the courage to do that. In Jesus' name.